I became a Christian in May 2001, and many of you have heard bits and pieces or larger portions of my own salvation story. Um, What I haven't shared a whole lot of is how singing played a role in my salvation. And I wanted to share a little bit about that with you this morning. Um, When I was in my freshman year, so this was uh, the the end of... uh, the school year 2000, okay, so I'm dating myself, I'm 42, at that point I was, I was 19, and I had grown up in church almost every Sunday going to church, um, had heard preaching, had heard singing, and the part of just local church culture, uh, but in my junior and senior high years, uh, the allure of sports and girlfriends and uh, a hyper-focus on academics, it's good to be focused on academics my young friends here, but it can also become an idol if that's all that you're going after, right? And so that became the focus of my life, sports and school and relationships. And I would just sort of walk through the motions on a Sunday morning and was able to very easily compartmentalize that part of my life. It really wasn't kind of a dominant seeping into my heart kind of thing. It's just something I put in this box on Sunday morning for an hour, hour and a half. But when I got to my freshman year in college, the Lord managed to turn me on my head because the things that I was trusting in, sports, I was a football player, academics, and a relationship that I was in for four years, all of that ended. I I, I was struggling as a football player, wasn't nearly as good as I thought I was. I was struggling as a student, getting grades that I had never got before, and a relationship that I was in ended. So suddenly, the things that I was trusting in The Lord, in his kindness, though it didn't feel kind at the time, was just whacking down those false pillars that I was was standing on, uh, bringing me really to my knees, which was a grace to me. It It was redemptive, but I didn't necessarily sense that or feel that in the in the time. And I remember at the end of my freshman year, just struggling with anxiousness, not knowing who I was or where I stood with God, struggling with questions of identity and anxiety. I remember sitting in a room where I was trying to study for a a biology final, and I couldn't focus at all on the material, on the biology. Rather, what I focused on, what came to mind naturally, was some of the songs I sang as a teenager in my church that I didn't necessarily rehearse all the time, but they had been ingrained in me because of the practice of just going to church Sunday in, Sunday out, though like I had no interest in it, what was going on in those moments was a reinforcement of sound doctrine in my heart by just the mechanism of going to church, the discipline and the practice of going to church and hearing other people sing. And so this is an this oldie, this is 1985, Twyla Paris, the song He is Exalted. You may or may not be familiar with this song. I know it by heart. He is exalted. The king is exalted on high. He is exalted forever exalted, and I will praise his name. Really, it's just a a spinoff of Psalm 113, what I read this morning. It's enthroning the Lord on our praises. It's just telling him who he actually is. He's the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He sits enthroned above all earthly powers. And as I began to sing that, I had comfort in my soul. My problems became small as God became big. There's a great book by Ed Welch 
that says, when people are big and God is small, it's getting at the, the, fear of, the fear of people and what they think. Well, the Psalms and the Bible as a whole flips that around. When God becomes big in your life, people and their opinions and your problems become small. And that song by Twyla Harris, written in 1985, helped me make God big and my problems suddenly became small. Why do I share this story? Because, friends, songs teach. Throughout the ages, songs are a vehicle of communicating truth. God's people have sung the scriptures for 3,500 years. It's a part of Hebrew culture. You sing the Bible as a mnemonic. The truths of the Bible get reinforced as you sing them. It's true in our, our culture. How do our kids learn the alphabet? A, B, C. It's a song. Songs teach. They are a powerful mnemonic device of reinforcing truths in our minds and ultimately into our hearts. Songs teach. This morning we begin a, a new sermon series, a very brief one, but an important one, a two-week sermon series on congregational worship. And by that I mean the gathering of God's people on a Sunday morning. How do we think well about musical worship? Now, we'll talk in a moment. Worship is a massive word. Worship is a whole life response to God's revelation, to his work in our lives, to his character. It involves all that you do, how you work Monday through Friday, how you care for neighbors, how you parent, the truth-telling that's a, to be a part of you. All of that is worship. Musical worship is just a slice of it, but it's an important one, and that's going to be uh, the topic at hand for these next two weeks. How do we think well about musical worship in the life of our local church? Very important matter here, a dicey matter as well, because if we're honest, music is near and dear to many of our hearts. We have preferences and styles that we gravitate to. It's a source at times of frustration with your local church or discontent and at times division. How do we think well about musical worship in the life of our local church? That's the aim of these two weeks of this brief sermon series on congregational worship. I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 100. Psalm 100. You can find that uh, in your Bibles on page 500. Psalm 100. Uh, we're going to be in this passage and also a New Testament passage that I'll have you turn to. I'll give you the page number uh, partway through the sermon. But we're going to begin in Psalm 100, and then we'll make the transition to the New Testament in a moment. So let's begin, Psalm 100, and I should mention, if you need a copy of the Bible, we love to give free Bibles away in the lobby uh, on the bookshelf closest to the restrooms. There's a, a stack of Bibles, hardback, black Bibles. You're welcome to take one if you need one. Give one to a friend if he or she needs one. Psalm 100, a psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us. We are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. 
Give thanks to him, bless his name. For the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. I want to organize our time this morning uh, by providing a definition of worship and then two goals that don't just serve as goals, they serve as guardrails for congregational worship. A definition of worship and then two goals slash guardrails that kind of keep us on the path headed towards our goal of congregational worship. So one definition and two goals slash guardrails. First, a definition of worship. What is worship? Well, Psalm 100 displays the definition of worship beautifully. Worship is our faithful response to God's revelation. It's our response to God's prior revelation of his character, of his work. So God is the initiator of worship. He moves first, we move second. He reveals himself, his work, his word, and then we respond to that work, to that word, to that character. You see, worship is a rhythm of revelation and response, revelation, response. God reveals who he is and his work, and we respond accordingly. Worship is a rhythm of God's revelation and our response. Let's look closely at Psalm 100. It says in the the superscript there, a, a psalm for giving thanks. There's different kinds of psalms in the Psalter, the book of Psalms, as we call it, the Psalter. There are thanksgiving Psalms, there are psalms of lament, there are psalms of triumph and victory. This is a psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us. We are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Notice the repetition of thanksgiving, giving thanks, thanksgiving. It's a theme. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Now, I read that again just so that you can hear it. There's a noticeable, a discernible structure to Psalm 100, isn't it? Do you pick up on what's happening here? There's a series of seven commands, seven imperatives leading off with make a joyful noise to the Lord. That's the first in a series of seven commands in verses one through four. And then those commands are followed by the grounds of all those commands. The reason you're given those commands, the motivation behind those commands. So you have seven commands followed by the grounds, the reason for the commands. Let's just briefly take a tour of these commands. There's significance. We won't spend a ton of time in each of these, but there there are rich seven commands. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Isn't that encouraging? The Lord doesn't say sing beautifully. He says make a joyful noise. Not all of us are singers here, but God loves to hear your voice. Make a joyful noise. Be audible. The idea here in this Hebrew verb is to shout joyfully to the Lord Shout in praise over his promise, his provision, his triumph, his victory. This is the verb that's used when the walls of Jericho come down in Joshua chapter 6. 
They're shouting God's praises because he's the one who triumphs over their enemies and they didn't even have to bring a sword. Shout praises of victory to the Lord. He is your commander. He's the one who does battle for you. It's in Joshua chapter 6, the battle of Jericho. It's also in Ezra chapter 3. We studied this a year ago when we went through the book of Ezra. When the temple foundation is laid, the people shout in praise to the Lord. It's a song of thanksgiving and victory and gratefulness because the temple that was once destroyed is now being laid again. Construction begins, so they're, they're praising. Make a joyful noise. Shout joyfully to the Lord because of his work. Command number two, serve the Lord with gladness. Now, serving here is a worship word. When you read serve in the Old Testament, it's code language for worship. I'll give you an example. In the Exodus, as God is steering his people out of the land of bondage to Pharaoh in Egypt, what does God communicate to Moses to say to Pharaoh? God says, Moses, go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. Thus saith the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. Now, is God like some pig-headed king who just wants people to serve his, his every need? No. That they may serve me in the wilderness is that they may worship me in the wilderness, offer sacrifices to me, that they may give themselves, all of themselves to me. That's what it means in the Old Testament to serve the Lord is to worship him. Give of yourself. Let them go out into the wilderness. Free them that they might serve slash worship me. Give themselves unto me in that setting. Friends, what you give yourself to is what you worship. I shared some of my story. You know what I gave myself to in junior and senior high? Football, academics, and relationships. That was what I gave myself to. That was what I worshipped. Worship is a whole life response to God, living your life in a Godward direction. He's the only one that will truly satisfy us. Everything else that we worship, good things, things that he gives as gifts. But when you worship them, when you give yourself to those, they cease to become good. They, They enslave you, actually. That's what an idol is. We must give ourselves entirely unto God. Once that's in order, everything else falls in place. So to serve the Lord with gladness is to worship him, to give yourself to him with gladness. Commandment number three, come into his presence with singing. This is a call to assemble, a call to gather as a people in person before the Lord with singing. Worship is incarnational. I understand we went through a excruciatingly difficult time through a pandemic and you had for a season to do church online and some of us our single friends you did that alone in your living room or on your computer or on your Roku whatever that looked like for you terribly isolating worship is meant to be incarnational that mean, that, that means in the flesh people shouldering up with people. Come into his presence. Assemble yourselves together in person. That's the design of worship. Something unique happens as God's people gather together as a church. God inhabits the praises of his people. He is here with us as we sing, as we pray, as we hear his word read and preached. 
there's something unique that happens as God, as God's people worship him, he dwells among us. Author and theologian Herman Bavinck once wrote, only within the gathering of the saints can the length and the breadth, the depth and the height of the love of Christ be comprehended. One who separates himself or herself from the church becomes a branch that is torn from its tree that ultimately withers away. We need to gather with God's people to sing. There's something unique and blessed that happens as God's people gather to worship, and singing is a part of that. Commandment number four, know that the Lord, he is God. Know that the Lord, he is God. What's going on here? Worship involves knowledge. Worship involves engaging the mind. It's a mental exercise. We engage our thoughts on God. We consider who he is and what he's done. We set our mental energies upon God. Know that he is God. Worship is not a time to turn your mind off. It's a time to engage your mind. Enter his gates with thanksgiving, commandment number five. This is a repeat of the earlier command to come into his presence. We are to gather, assemble ourselves together in person for the express purpose of worshiping God. I don't want to belabor this point, but it's in here twice for a reason. God's people must gather with one another to worship. And the reality is, brothers and sisters, we live in a culture, a Christian culture, where right now commitment to a local church is defined by attending church twice a week. The average committed Christian attends church 50%. I don't say that to be castigating towards any. That's just the reality of an upwardly mobile, demanding, busy culture. If you're going to church twice a month, that's what is considered committed. Friends, there are reasons to miss church, certainly. But I just want to encourage all of us, what might an application step be? It would just be to simply evaluate your rhythms of week and weekends. Is the church gathered a priority for you and your family? It's imperative that God's people enter his gates regularly. On the Lord's Day, yes, you're going to get sick. Things are going to happen. The wheels are going to fall off the bus some mornings. I get it. But more often than not, what does it look like to make the church gathered a priority? Anyone who separates himself, herself, herself from the church gathered ultimately withers. God inhabits the prayers and the praises of his people. Commandment number six, give thanks to him. The heart of worship is gratefulness for God's grace, his saving work, gratefulness. And finally, commandment number seven, bless his name. Bless, that is, well, doesn't, doesn't God bless us? Yes, he does. But one of the definitions of bless is to praise or to speak good words about God to God. To bless God is just to tell him the truth about his character. God, you are exalted. You are the king. You are worthy of all of my praise, every ounce of my worship. To bless God is just to tell God the truth about himself. And he loves to hear it. He wouldn't be God if he didn't love to hear it. He loves to hear us blessing his name, speaking his character back to him. It blesses him. It encourages us, too.
seven commandments, we went through those briefly, all with a common basis, a common grounds. What is the grounds? What is that basis? Verse 5. All of this worship predicated on verse 5. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. All the worship commanded in verses 1 through 4, all seven commands are a response to God's goodness and specifically to his steadfast love here in verse 5. Worship is a rhythm of us responding to God's revelation. And the revelation that we see here is his steadfast love. One of the most beautiful words in all the Bible, a little Hebrew lesson. Hebrew has some of these guttural words, that is words that you say with your throat. This one is chesed, chesed. It's kind of like you're hawking up something. That, that it's a beautiful word though, chesed. Steadfast love, unfailing love. It's actually covenant loyalty, covenant love, in that God makes a promise and he never reneges on the promise. He is faithful to fulfill his promise. It's what motivates him to save people is his chesed, his steadfast love. We see it in Exodus. Exodus 2, verses 24 and 25, God hears the groaning of his people enslaved in Egypt. Now, is he unmoved by that groaning? No, his heart aches over his people's brutality. God heard the groaning of his people. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. That's the end of Exodus 2. Guess what happens in Exodus 3? God calls the deliverer Moses. So what moves God to call Moses the deliverer is his remembrance of his covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God remembers his covenant. He is faithful. That is that steadfast covenant loyalty kind of love, that chesed love. So all of these commands that we see to worship are actually grounded in God's steadfast love, the fact that he is a saving God. The equivalent in the New Testament to chesed is grace, God's unfailing love, the unmerited favor that he gives his people. We are saved by grace. So the equivalent in the New Testament to chesed is the word charis or grace, grace, because it's God's steadfast love that moved him to save us from a worse kind of bondage, and that is bondage to sin and death. It's by grace we've been saved through faith, Ephesians 2.8. The commands to worship are grounded in God's steadfast love, his saving love in our lives that have been witnessed, Old and New Testaments alike. God moves because he loves his people. Loves his people. Worship is our faithful response to God's revelation. One definition, two goals or guardrails. Here are the two goals. Number one, goal, guardrail number one, congregational participation. Congregational participation. Let's look again at the imperatives in Psalm 100. Read these again. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us. We are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Seven commandments. We've already heard them. We've been through them. 
But the key question is, to whom are the commandments given? And this is where our modern English fails us a little bit. To whom are these commands given? In modern English, there's not a discernible difference between you singular and you plural. So, for example, I can say to my daughter Cecile, go outside and play. You implied go outside and play, that command. Or I could say to Cecile and Soren, you go outside and play. There's no difference between you singular, you plural, unless you hail from Georgia, like our friend Dylan here. Y'all go outside and play. But in correct English, it's you go outside and play, you go outside. There's no discernible. I understand where our southern friends do that, but modern there's actually no, no difference. In Hebrew, there is a difference. The Hebrew folks are like the southern folks because they have a y'all and a you singular. There's, there's, it's discernible in Hebrew. And guess what the Hebrew is in all seven of these commands? Y'all make a joyful noise. You all come into his presence with gladness. Seven times over, y'all, y'all, you all, you all. It's not speaking to a singular person. It's the church gathered, the congregation, the assembly gathered. This is a communal calling to worship. All of them are in the plural. All of them are for the people. Congregational worship is for the whole congregation. Congregational participation is therefore one of our goals. We want the whole congregation to sing and to hear that one another singing. And so if that's the goal, it's also a guardrail. It kind of keeps us on the path moving towards the goal. So it informs things that, that we think about, important matters like song selection. This goes without saying, but not all songs are super singable. We want to choose songs on a Sunday that the congregation can follow and readily sing along. Songs that are accessible to the congregation. Some songs are just simply better performed by a professional band. And that's a fine thing. That's a wonderful thing to go to see Chris Tomlin at the Aganis Arena or wherever he comes. You know, that's, that's a good thing, but that's not congregational worship on a Sunday morning. So we want to think through what songs are we choosing and are they singable? Are they accessible? Can the congregation follow along? The arrangement or the key or the tempo, I'm getting into areas that I do not know about, so I'll cease to, but, but there's things that these, these friends here who, who help do this, got to think about, how can I best serve the congregation through the arrangement, through the tempo? Is it, is it singable? Is it accessible? If the goal is congregational participation, well, that informs how we arrange it, what song we sing. It also informs what our friends here at this table do, the volume the volume. There's a correlation between how loud it is up here to how loud you will sing. So if the volume's cranked up here, the byproduct is we in the congregation become less participants and more spectators. We can't even hear ourselves sing. We're kind of watching what's happening up here. And so we want to try find the right volume so that we can hear our friends leading us, but we can also hear ourselves singing. So there's a fine line between thinking through what's the appropriate volume. It's okay to go to the Aganis Arena and hear Chris Tomlin and then crank it up because the focus is down here. That's a performance. It's not a worship gathering, per se. And so volume is, is involved here. Song selection, arrangement, tempo, volume, lighting. 
as much as you can control. Yes, three years ago, we purchased a, a cinema here, and the lighting was poor. Little by little, as we have the resources, we want to increase the lighting. Why do we want to do that? And I understand not everybody shares this conviction, but there's thought behind this, so hear me out. When it's dark in a worship gathering, and there's only spotlights up here, what does that communicate about where the, t the attention and the focus must be? If it's dark all over here, and it's lighting up, the, the attention is coming to here. The focus is, is, is here. And you become more of a spectator of what's here than a participant of all out here. So if you can increase the house lighting, you can actually hear and see people moving their mouths and singing in a congregation. They're teaching you the truths, and we'll talk about this in a moment. You're hearing them. You're seeing them sing. You're a participant, not a spectator. So we want to do our best to increase the house lighting so that people can see one another singing. It's a congregational event, not a, not a spectator sport that we're watching just what's up, what's up here, as good as they might be. Congregational worship, Sunday worship, is about all the people gathered together. So it involves thinking about lighting. A final application here on this, this goal, this guardrail, is I want to encourage you to sing. Men at Beacon, I want to encourage you to sing. Sometimes we can be self-conscious. I know our church isn't, isn't huge, particularly in the summer. The crowd is thinner. And it can be kind of intimidating to lift your voice because what if somebody hears you? Well, that's okay. Like, the Lord wants to hear you. So can I encourage you, brothers, if you're embarrassed to sing, the Lord's not, the Lord's not embarrassed. He wants to hear you sing. Lift your voice. You know, you don't have to, you know, it, it can be a joyful noise. I, I, won't, I won't say that, you know. He wants, to, he, he wants to hear you sing. So just stretch yourself. Sing. Lift your voice. Gals, sing. If, you, if you're, ah, I, I don't think I have a good voice. Sing. Lift your voice. The Lord wants to hear it. Congregational participation is our goal and guardrail number one. A second and final goal and guardrail. Sing songs with sound doctrine. Sing songs with sound doctrine. Now, this has been hinted at already in Psalm 100, verse 3. I mentioned, know the Lord, he is God. We worship God with our minds. It's an intellectual exercise and a heart exercise. But we set our minds, we engage our mental energies on him. So we see that here in Psalm 100. But we also see it in a New Testament passage that I want to invite you to turn to on page 984. This is Colossians 3. Colossians 3, verses 16 and 17, page 984. The importance of singing songs with sound doctrine is more fully spelled out here in this New Testament passage. Colossians 3, verses 16 and 17, Paul writes, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with, thanksgiving, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Colossians 3 is written to a church community just like ours. And God, Paul is giving instructions by the authority of God on how they ought to do life together. And the instructions here are about body life teaching in the congregation, and one of the applications or one of the avenues of teaching is singing. Notice what he says, let the word of Christ, his 
words dwell in you. In other words, the Scripture in the Old Testament and the teachings of Jesus that were circulating, the Gospels that are circulating at the time that Paul wrote Colossians, let them dwell in you richly. In other words, read them. Let them be ruminating in your hearts, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. There's a flow to this passage, and here's the flow. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. How? By teaching and instructing and admonishing. How do you do that teaching and admonishing? One of the ways is, notice what happened, singing hymns and spiritual songs and psalms. So one of the ways that we let the word dwell in us is by teaching one another, and one of the ways that we teach one another is by singing. And so to go back to, like, why do we want the lights on in here? Because you want to be able to look around, and I encourage you to do this as you sing. Look around and see who else is singing. Because what they're singing and the truths that they're telling are for you. You want to hear your brothers and sisters in the church gathered singing the praises of God and telling of the truths of God. So when you, when you sing, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing, that's, that's fortress language that you need to hear coming from Dylan Colley or Lorona Ward or Brian Hodder. You, you need to hear that, yes, my Lord is a mighty fortress and I'm going through an awful battle right now where I'm an, under an onslaught by the enemy, but a mighty fortress is my God and I hear my friends singing and it's reinforced in my heart. Songs teach, so therefore we've got to select songs that have sound doctrine because they're designed to teach one another. Colossians 3, as we sing, we're teaching. There's this kind of cross-hybridization of truths going all over the place as your brothers and sisters are singing to one another. That's an application right here in Colossians 3. Let the word dwell in you richly. How? By teaching and instructing one another. How do you do that? Well, you sing. You sing. Songs teach. I mentioned the ABCs already. We learned that because it's cued to a song. What's a song that you know? I won't date you. 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. Some of us know songs 50 years old. You could say it without having it even written down. Songs teach. Therefore, we have to have the utmost care and wisdom and thoughtfulness as we choose the songs that we sing on a Sunday morning. And frankly, this is another application and a sermon for another day, but what you listen to in your own time. My mother used to say, Dane, what you put your eyes to, what you watch on TV, and what you put in your ear is what's going to come out of your heart. You've you, you got to be careful. So this is an application for another way, but what, what kind of music and content do you regularly listen to? There's a diversity of, of material out there, but is it, is it healthy? Is it edifying? Just be thoughtful about what you listen to as an individual, and certainly the application, the focus here today is how do we select songs? that teach sound doctrine, because that's what's intended. Songs teach. One definition, two goals, guardrails. The definition of worship, it's our faithful response to God's revelation. The two goals that we're talking about here, number one, congregational participation, and number two, singing songs with sound doctrine. I want to conclude with this emphasis in both of these passages, Psalm 100 in the Old Testament, Colossians 3 in the New. There's an emphasis on thankfulness, gratefulness. So Psalm 100, verse 4, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name. There's just gratefulness oozing out all over this passage. And so it is in Colossians 3. 
Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Thanksgiving, gratefulness, it's all through here. Why are we grateful? Because of the gospel, the God of the gospel who has saved us and delivered us from sin and death through his son Jesus. He's given us grace. That's his steadfast love coming to us. And when we focus on that in our lives and in our churches, we can't help but be grateful. And I want to land on this because there's a lot of criticism, negativity, opinions that are thrown around in local churches, oftentimes directed to the quality and the kind and the style of music. I just want to let God's grace lead you in this. Focus on his grace and watch yourself become grateful and less critical. It's okay to be constructively critical, but oftentimes it's not constructive. Let gratefulness, thankfulness guide you in this discussion about musical worship. And the way that you do that is by focusing on the gospel and on the, the grace of God in Jesus Christ. You can't help but be grateful as we do that. This is part one. Stay tuned for part two next week. We will talk about the who of congregational worship and the how long of congregational worship. Who does it involve and how long will we be doing it? So that's for next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your word, your truth, uh, your invitation to worship you. We understand we are hopeless to approach you in our own works, in our own merits and achievements. We would never attain relationship with you. We could never approach you. But because of your prior work, your revelation, we can come trusting in it, trusting in your son Jesus, his saving love for us. Lord, help us to worship you in response. Help us to be thoughtful as we do that. Help us to be sacrificial, allowing other, others' preferences and styles to to win the day sometimes and not to have insist on our own way all the time. Father, help us to be a people that worships you in spirit and in truth for your glory and for our good ultimately. In Jesus' name, amen.